Having a loved one die suddenly is devastating and can be hard for us to wrap our heads around. Not knowing what happened to them leaves their family and friends with a lot of heartache and pain and I can't even begin to imagine what that must feel like. Some families will get answers, but those answers might lead to more questions and a scenario that no one can make sense out of. In today's case, police initially believed no foul play was involved, although this was before the medical examiner would come to a stunning conclusion regarding her cause of death. Let's uncover the unsolved murder of Patsy Wright. Hello and welcome to the 18th episode of Uncover True Crime Podcast. My name is Stephanie and each week we uncover a different unsolved true crime case, ranging from unsolved murders, missing persons, Jane and John Doe's, and suspicious deaths. You can listen to the podcast on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast streaming apps, as well as on YouTube by searching Uncover True Crime. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Uncover underscore pod, and on Instagram at Uncover True Crime Pod. Without any further ado, let's uncover the unsolved murder of Patsy Wright. Patricia Virginia Bolton was born on the 24th of February 1944 and would go by the name Patsy, so that's how I'll refer to her going forward. She, her sister Sally, and her parents Virginia and William lived in Arlington, Texas when Patsy and Sally were young, but when the two sisters flew the nest, they moved to Park Cities, around 26 miles away. Patsy and Sally grew up watching their father work hard to build and manage a wax museum called the Great Southwest Museum. After he died, they took their stepmother to court to gain ownership of the museum and won. From that point onwards, Sally and Patsy became business partners and were very successful businesswomen. Patsy's life revolved around more than just a wax museum though. In 1965, she married a man called Bill Wright and together they had two kids, Leslie and Wayne. Bill and Patsy would divorce in 1980 but remained friends even after he moved to Houston and remarried. Patsy also moved on and married a Robert Cox in 1983, although this marriage wouldn't end so amicably. They separated just over a year later and she told her friends and family that she would never walk down the aisle again. Although she was sworn off marriage, she still believed in love and began dating Larry Todd soon after her second divorce. Patsy also had another love and that was for horses. She'd recently bought two horses and wanted to start training them and was committed to improving her riding skills so she could become a show jumper. Patsy had a lot going for her but this would all be taken away from her when she died unexpectedly aged just 43. On the 22nd of October 1987, Patsy attended a dress rehearsal for the Halloween show at the Wax Museum. She returned home around 3am and like every other evening, she had some NyQuil to help her sleep and went to bed. A short time later, she called her sister and said she wasn't feeling well. During the call, Patsy collapsed so Sally and her husband Steve rushed over to her home. Patsy's door was locked so Steve climbed in through the side window and let Sally in through the front door. When they got to the bedroom, they found Patsy unconscious on her bed and called 911. When describing that night, Sally said, quote, We got to the house and went back to the front door and of course the door was locked and we couldn't get in. When we got in, she was in the bedroom. She just looked like she'd kind of fainted, so I thought that's what had happened. So we tried to get her up, and that didn't work." Unquote. 
Steve started CPR and will later comment, quote, During that, a lot of green liquid came up from her and I would continuously spit it out onto the bed, or there was a towel there as I remember. Sometime after that, the medics came. Unquote. Despite Steve's attempts to save her life, Patsy was pronounced dead at 4.15am. Her death left her family in a state of shock and none of them could believe that Patsy had been taken so young and so quickly. Her daughter Leslie had this to say about her mother's death. Quote, you would never expect that to happen. She was so alive. She was so healthy. There was nothing wrong with her. And when it happened, you're just in awe because you would never have expected that to happen to her." Unquote. As her death was very sudden and unexplained, police were called in to investigate the scene, but did not initially suspect foul play or suicide. No note was found and there was no sign of forced entry, although it was noted her security alarm had not been set, but we will touch on this detail a little later. A patrolman spotted her bottle of NyQuil and bagged it as evidence, although at this time, they were not aware that this would be one of the biggest pieces of evidence in the entire case. Eight days after Patsy's death, Dr. Mark Cross, the medical examiner, called the detectives working on her case and said to Detective Sergeant Gus Gustafson, quote, Are you sitting down? I haven't seen anything like this in 20 years, unquote. Dr. Krauss told Gus that not only had Patsy been poisoned, but that her NyQuil had been laced with eight times the lethal amount of strychnine. Strychnine is a white, odourless, but bitter tasting powder. In the Victorian era, it was described by doctors for a wide variety of reasons, but as it is now known to be one of the most dangerous and potent drugs out there, its primary use is as an ingredient in pesticides. After ingesting strychnine, Symptoms will usually develop between 15 to 60 minutes later, and symptoms include agitation, restlessness, painful muscle spasms, fever, tightness in the jaw, rigidness in legs and arms, and difficulty breathing. A high dose can result in respiratory failure and brain death within 30 minutes. Patsy had been poisoned with a pure form of strychnine, the most dangerous form of the poison, which is why it can only be purchased by authorised buyers and around 100 companies throughout the United States. The only other place it is sometimes found, according to D Magazine, is in a few chemistry labs in colleges around the country. It's a horrible way to die and a particularly cruel and unusual way to kill Patsy, as she would have experienced several violent convulsions before dying and she would have been fully aware of what was going on. The day after the medical examiner made their ruling, Detective Gus, Dr. Mark Krauss, Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Pirwani, and officers from the EPA and FBI attended a meeting to determine if there was a risk to the public, but no other instances of strychnine poisoning had been reported, and they were able to rule out the possibility that the bottle of strychnine had been tampered with during production. Police knew this was no accident, and convinced that Patsy was not suicidal, they declared her death a homicide. As I mentioned earlier, Patsy had not set her burglar alarm when she returned home early on the 23rd of October, which seems unusual as Patsy and Steve claim her door was locked. It is possible she'd forgotten to do this, but given her NyQuil was tampered with after she'd purchased it, whoever poisoned her would have had access to her home. 
As few people knew that taking NyQuil was part of her evening routine, it was also likely someone who was close to her. Although the spare key she left outside her house in case of emergencies had gone missing previously, so it's possible the same person that stole the key was also the same person that poisoned her. One thing I was kind of curious about when I started researching this case was whether the police were able to tell when her NyQuil was tampered with. However, as NyQuil comes in a liquid form, not in pill form, it must have been poisoned on the 22nd or early on the 23rd, right before she died. Interestingly, there were two empty dinner plates on her bedside table, indicating someone else was in her home right before she passed away. I don't know if either the plate or any cutlery found near it was tested, but as this was before the days of DNA testing, it might not have yielded many useful results. Days after her mother died, Leslie received a call from a woman asking for Patsy. Leslie told the woman that her mother had passed away and the woman said, quote, Good, I wanted her dead. Unquote. I can't imagine how awful this must have been for Leslie to hear, but in my opinion it was likely a very disturbing hoax. Why would the woman call Leslie if she wanted to talk to Patsy? This woman has never been identified and it seems as though she just wanted to inflict pain onto a family that were already hurting so much. Police looked for suspects that might have had a reason to want Patsy dead. Detective Sergeant Gus said, quote, Money is a good motive, so is revenge love and hate. Sometimes it's anger, retaliation. Who stands to gain from her demise? Who stands to lose if she doesn't die?" Unquote. Few people have been definitively ruled out, but there are several theories as to who could have done this. Let's start with the people who found her, Sally and Steve. As her business partner, Sally inherited Patsy's share of the wax museum business when she died, making her the sole owner. Sally also had a half a million dollar life insurance policy out on Sally, and on first impressions, this looks really bad, but there was very practical reasons for this. They had both taken out $500,000 life insurance policies out on each other, so that if one of them did pass away, the other could use the money to settle stocks and shares so the other could become the sole owner of the business. When Sally was diagnosed with cancer in 1985, her and Patsy both agreed that their agreement needed to be amended. This was because if Sally's cancer became terminal and she died as a result, Steve would automatically inherit Sally's share of the business and any life insurance payout as he was her next of kin. Patsy did not want this to happen so they scheduled a meeting to alter the terms of their arrangement but this meeting would never take place as it was due to happen two weeks after Patsy's death. Apart from wanting to protect her business, another reason she didn't want Sally's share of the museum going to Steve was because of her dislike of him. She ran a background check on him when he and Sally first got together and told a friend that the report she obtained wasn't good but that she had destroyed it. This seems like a weird thing to do. Why do a background check on Steve if she wasn't willing to show Sally the results if they contained something bad or something she should be aware of? It seems as though Patsy had a change of heart and to this day we don't know what information was on the report, although Steve does have a previous conviction for assault. Patsy's feelings about Steve might have been justified as he apparently blew through all of Sally's inheritance after her parents died and the two were in debt. There is no doubt that both Sally and Steve would have easily been able to gain access to her house as Sally and Patsy were close and probably at each other's houses often. 
They would also have been aware that Patsy took NyQuil every night before bed. It's also important to note that Steve was the only person who saw the two plates next to her bed. Did he tell the police this detail in order to mislead them into thinking she had a guest in her home right before she died in order to take suspicion off of him? One major thing that doesn't make sense if Stephen was involved in her death was that he gave her mouth to mouth. If he poisoned Patsy or was complicit in the plan, why would he risk ingesting the strychnine by giving her mouth to mouth? One of the paramedics told police that, quote, nobody successfully performed CPR on this woman, unquote. I don't know what context in which this was said and I think this is very important to fully understand this statement. I think it's pretty obvious attempts to save her life were unsuccessful since she died. However, is that what he meant or did he mean that no one had even tried to perform CPR on her or that the CPR was not done properly? If he didn't perform CPR but later claimed that he did, I'll admit this is suspicious. But as someone who has performed CPR, I can't even begin to describe the adrenaline you feel when trying to save someone's life. I've been taught how to do chest compressions and mouth-to-mouth -mouth several times during different first aid trainings I've completed over the years, I don't think anything could have fully prepared me to deal with that situation. When I was doing chest compressions, I didn't feel like I was doing it properly because of how terrified I was, so I can't empathise with Steve's situation, although the situation I was in did have a better outcome. Sorry for the mini story time, but if he didn't perform CPR properly, personally wouldn't use this against him as we're not always thinking clearly in such stressful situations. The fact that he is the only one that noticed the dinner plate is more suspicious, but he claims he moved them in order to create more space so he could help Patsy. This doesn't make sense to me for a few reasons. One, in order to give CPR, he would have needed to place Patsy on the floor, so I don't understand why he would have had to move the plates. But I don't know whether he did give CPR to her on the bed or on the floor. Two, even if he did have to move the plates for some reason, surely the plates still would have been in her bedroom. Patsy was unresponsive in her bedroom and at this point she'd either already died or was very close to dying. If you found her in this state, would your first concern really be to put her plates back in her kitchen or to move them to another room in the house? I doubt it very much. While this detail in his account is peculiar, it doesn't prove anything and he and Sally both passed lie detector tests. Although so in my opinion, that doesn't prove anything either. Let's move on to the next theory, her second ex-husband, Robert Cox. The reason they divorced is that Patsy found out the truth about his finances. He owed a lot of money to the taxman and he spent a lot of time gambling. He lived off of Patsy's money for the year they were married and according to Patsy, he changed the minute they tied the knot. He became verbally abusive and stopped being affectionate, but the straw that broke the camel's back was when government officials came after her to pay his debt. Patsy made Robert sign a prenup before they got married and under the terms of this prenup, Patsy would not be responsible for any of his debts. Robert harassed her during and after the divorce, saying he, quote, knew people that could get anything done, unquote, and could get someone, quote, snuffed out, unquote. She got a restraining order against him so he was not permitted to be within a hundred feet of her or her home. The harassment reportedly ended in 1986, but this was not the start of his legal issues. He also owned a wax museum, which he attempted to sell to 
Patsy before they got married. She offered him $14,000, an offer that he apparently found insulting. Just before they got married, his museum burnt down. He later sued the insurance company as they refused to play the claim, suspecting that Robert himself had set the fire in order to commit insurance fraud. Robert had apparently met up with Patsy eight to ten times between 1986 and 1987 to discuss business and how much the property in the museum was worth. Patsy was due to be called as a witness in the upcoming civil trial. According to D Magazine, she was expected to swear to the fact that the most valuable asset in the building had not in fact burned down with the rest of the contents as Robert was claiming, but was in fact in his office, a claim that would have made the insurance company's case that much stronger. Patsy never got to testify as she died just 10 days before the trial started. Robert went on to win his case and was awarded $1.3 million. He has never publicly commented on Patsy's murder, refused to take a lie detector test, although has never officially been named a person of interest or a suspect. It would be odd for police to look into one ex-husband without looking into the other, so of course they did question the father of her children, Bill Wright. Although he had remarried and remained close to Patsy, police could not find any motive as to why he would want her dead. They also looked into her children, Leslie and Wayne, both of whom stood to inherit a lot from their mother's death. From what I could find, police never seriously considered them suspects as they were both devastated by their mother's sudden passing, and their grief appeared to be genuine. Patsy was very close to her kids, and no one believed that Leslie or Wayne were capable of something like this. Police also questioned Larry Todd, Patsy's boyfriend. Although he had nothing financial to gain from her death, it was someone who knew Patsy who poisoned her. Like her kids, Larry was inconsolable after her death and he had an airtight alibi. He was in Austin, Texas, three hours away from Patsy's home. He was able to confirm this by phone records that showed that he called Patsy that night from Austin. Now that we've covered most of the obvious suspects, there are a few more people that are rumoured to be involved in her murder. The first two are Bonnie and Bill Alexander, the couple who boarded Patsy's two horses. Slightly weird people to suspect of such a serious crime until you realise that they cashed a cheque from Patsy the day after her murder. A cheque no one else, not even her best friend and financial advisor, were aware she had written. She dated the cheque, signed it, and had written the words saddle on the cheque, but the rest of it was filled out by the Alexanders. They added the word fees after the saddle and they made the cheque out for $4,000, which they claim was in fact what she was due them for boarding her horses. They claim that Patsy told them just to write in however much she owed them, which does seem very trusting for a woman who was very smart with money. Although, if they did really want to steal from her, they could have gotten way more than $4,000 and it's likely they would have known this. Another fact police found odd was that both of her horses were in Bill and Bonnie's names. They explained that she did this so that her brother-in-law Steve couldn't try to claim them if something happened to her. Out of all her assets, I'm surprised that her horses would be that high up there, but I don't even know why she would have thought he could lay claim on them. I guess if everything she had would automatically go to her sister, then yes, it's possible Steve would have ended up with ownership of the horses. But what about her kids? 
or um, a will. Seems weird that a woman with as much money as she had wouldn't have had a will, or know how to clearly document in one who she did and did not want her property going to. While I think it's unlikely this type of cruel murder was committed over a couple of horses, what about an affair? There were rumours that she and Bill had feelings for each other and Patsy was heard saying something to the effect of, quote, if she could find a man like Bill, she'd marry him. Unquote. This might have been a playful way of her saying why are all the good ones taken and there is no evidence to back up this rumour, so for now it remains just a rumour. Now let's talk about a man called Leo Fikes, an old flame of Patsy's. He wasn't even on Detective Sergeant Gustafson's radar until he got an anonymous call from someone saying that Leo had also dated a woman called Linda Donahue, who was also murdered. Weird coincidence, isn't it? A weirder coincidence is that he owned a chemical company and made a purchase from one of the only stores that sold strychnine. As damning as this all might sound, it is possible this is all just a coincidence. The receipt did not show any purchase of strychnine and his company produced bathroom cleaning products, so he had absolutely no use for strychnine and wouldn't have had it lying around. As for the murder of Linda Donahue, he was never even a suspect in this case as they had only gone on a few dates. A man called Roger Fain was convicted of Linda's murder in 2007 while serving a prison sentence for the murder of Sandra Dunmont. He is also a suspect in the murder of Darlene Anderson, but still proclaims his innocence in all three cases. Given that these three women were killed in a physically and sexually violent attack, it's unlikely that Roger also killed Patsy, and other than this very loose connection, nothing else ties him to this case. Linda Donahue's murder is not the only death that Patsy's was once thought to be related to. In 1984, one of the employees at Patsy and Sally's museum, Laurie Williams, went to the hospital after suffering with severe abdominal pain. They never discovered what was causing her pain and she died 11 days later. Even the autopsy didn't yield an official cause of death and she was laid to rest without her family receiving any answers. Private detective Bill Deere is convinced that she was poisoned with arsenic, but Dr. Jeffrey Bernard stated, quote, Despite an extensive exhumation autopsy on September 12, as well as a complete toxologic evaluation of Ms. Williams' tissues from two independent laboratories, I am unable to say that she was not poisoned. What I can say is that there is no detectable poisons in her body at this time. This might be due to the fact that either she was not poisoned, or a poison might have been administered but was metabolized and excreted from her body prior to death." Unquote. This theory implies that Laurie's death and Patsy's murder are related because they both worked at the Wax Museum. Personally, I think this is a stretch. Laurie was a receptionist at the museum so I don't know what anyone could have gained from killing her if the motive was related to the museum. Also, in the two years between Laurie and Patsy's deaths, there is no record or account of any other employees being poisoned so I doubt that the deaths are connected. Patsy's murder and Laurie's death would not be the only tragedies linked to the Great Southwest Wax Museum, as it burned down less than a year after Patsy's death a fire caused by an electrical fault. Sally helped rebuild the museum, which is now the Palace of Wax and Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum. In 1989, 
Bill Deere, the same PI that worked on Laurie Williams' case, was also hired by Patsy's family, but no new evidence has come to light over 30 years after the murder. When Detective Sergeant Gus was promoted, the only unsolved murder he handed over to his successor was Patsy Wright's, and as his wife Vicky would write in her book, quote, from time to time, I hear the disappointment in his voice when he talks about Patsy Wright's murder. Unquote. Patsy's death was so cruel and unusual that it is troubling to think that the person responsible is still out there, having never faced justice. I can only hope that one day they will, so that her family can finally have some closure. If you have any information on Patsy's murder, please contact the Dallas County Homicide Unit on 214-671-3661. All photos and sources related to this case can be found on our website at uncovertruecrimepodcast.com. UK. If you like this podcast, please remember to like and review this episode on whatever podcast streaming app you're listening to this on. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter at uncover underscore pod and on Instagram at uncover true crime pod. That's all I have for you today. Thank you for listening till the very end. Please stay safe and have a good night.